Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through 34 will be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, let me say, if, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a, a Bible in the pew there in front of you, or uh, if not, there's a Bible in some pew somewhere that you can grab and use. And uh, I should also say, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to take that Bible, uh, write your name in the front. Take it home with you, keep it, and bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Uh, Before we read Genesis 21, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you do hear us, as we just sang. Uh, We pray that you would hear us now. Uh, We pray, Father, that as we come to you and as we come to your Word, that you would soften our hearts and open our minds and Grant us faith by the power of your spirit to believe in what you have said in your word, uh, to understand it, to cling to it, most of all, to rest in Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly and cling to him in everything that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 21, beginning in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for for me that I dug this well." Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines." Well, there are a lot of options on the table when it comes to how we as Christians live in the world. Some Christians look just like the world. Uh, Their lives, their habits, their families, their sins are no different from the people around them. Other Christians have created a a subculture, right? Christian music, Christian movies, Christian lingo. Uh, Their lives may be actually different or... Uh, They may just live a kind of parallel life, kind of like the world, but a Christian version of it. Um, Some Christians live for all practical purposes like like the Amish, right? They they avoid the culture at all costs. It's a a kind of 21st century uh, monasticism, which seeks to keep the world out there. Still others are seeking to dominate the culture, to Christianize it, to transform it. Uh, They are seeking reform along Christian values, right? Moral, intellectual, educational, economic. Uh, You name it, they'll tell you the Christian view of how we should take back the culture and reinstitute a Christian way of doing things. 
Now, there genuinely are pros and cons to each of these ways of approaching life. Uh, They each have something to commend them and some things that they take to excess or just plain have wrong. But thankfully, Scripture is not silent on how we relate to the world around us. And Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, talks about the Christian's relationship to the world. He says to his disciples in John 15, 19, You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. In John 16, 33, he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus says to his father later in John 17, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And you'll perhaps notice what has become traditional language to use uh, when talking about these things. Christians have been chosen out of the world and then sent into the world. Christians are not of the world, but they are in it. And yet the Christian's relationship to his or her surroundings uh, didn't start with Jesus in the Gospel of John. The book of Hebrews pictures God's people as sojourners and aliens from Abel to Moses and beyond. We are simply in a long line of people who have lived as pilgrims and walked by faith before us. Which is why we can turn to the second half of Genesis chapter 21 and learn how to live as sojourners in the world. And here's what we'll see this morning. As aliens and sojourners, despite present conflict... We can trust God's promises, bless the nations, and praise God for his blessings, all because of the certainty of God's promises in the resurrection, which gives us five points. You can see them listed in your bulletin. Uh, First is note where we are, uh, living as aliens and strangers. Second, acknowledge the conflict. Third, trust God's promises. Fourth, bless the nations. And fifth, praise God for his blessings. So first, note where we are. We live in 21st century America. And, uh, you know, when I think about that, it still kind of blows my mind. 2023. Uh, That's crazy. You know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so 23 meant 1923, right? If you said, you know, the year 23, you meant 1923, and that was a long time ago. But now 23 means 2023, and that just seems weird to me. Uh, But whether we live in 2023 or 1923 or 1623 or 423, of course, isn't the point. Whenever we live, we live as aliens and strangers on earth. I want you to notice two timestamps in our passage. First, verse 22 says, at that time. Uh, What does that mean? Well, it means at the time of Isaac's weaning uh, and at the time of Ishmael's leaving, both earlier in the chapter. It means when Abraham was about 103 years old. Uh, It is literally a a rather mundane timestamp at that time. Also notice verse 23, or verse 34. Verse 34, the end of the passage says, And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Uh, This is a summary of the rest of Abraham's life. Uh, There there are still a few big events to come, uh, even one rather big thing in the next chapter. But this is a summary of his days. Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And sojourned because the promised land was not yet his. It was his by promise, but not yet his by possession. He was a sojourner in the land of the Philistines. 
Uh, Now, the Philistines would become later Israel's sworn enemies, but this is where Abraham lives, in in enemy territory, as it were. Uh, This world was not his home. He was an alien and a stranger in the land of the enemy. Now, we will uh, go more deeply into this in a moment, but notice that this this is ultimately the same for us today. Uh, The New Testament pictures Christians as pilgrims and aliens and exiles, sojourners on the earth. This world is not our home. But we are looking forward with Abraham, according to Hebrews 11, to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And put differently, our hope is dwelling in a new creation with Jesus, which Jesus will bring at his return. That is our, our heavenly promised land, our future inheritance. But until that day, we are pilgrims headed toward our ultimate home. Uh, sure, we, we live in the midst of the mundane. We live at that time, right? We live in 2023, but we live as sojourners in the land of the Philistines looking forward to the possession of the promised land. And so first, note where we are. Uh, Second, acknowledge the conflict. Uh, Our passage begins with Abimelech, a a king, coming with the leader of his army to Abraham. And he recognizes God's presence. We'll talk about that more in a minute. He seeks to make a treaty with Abraham. uh, But behind that is conflict. Uh, verse 25 uh, says that Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well. Uh, it, it wasn't an uncommon conflict, of course, though it was a serious one in that day. You couldn't live in the desert uh, without access to a well. And Abraham would have needed water for himself, for his large household, and for his many flocks and herds. And apparently, some of Abimelech's servants had seized, that is, taken by force, right, one of Abraham's wells, and they were using it for themselves. And stopping Abraham's household from drinking. Again, in that day, a common but a serious conflict. And Abraham experienced conflict at that time, right? During the many days of his sojourning, conflict with what, as as Christians, we might call the world, but what the Old Testament would simply call the nations. And it's probably no surprise that conflict with the nations is a theme throughout the Old Testament, Beginning in in chapter 3, God promised, Genesis chapter 3, God promised conflict uh, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Israel experienced repeated conflict with the nations around them, eventually being exiled and landing in Babylon once again as strangers and exiles. Uh, When Jesus came, of course, it was no different. He came and experienced conflict as well, except this time he was rejected by his own. More often than not, the nations received him, actually, as you read through the Gospels. But he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He faced conflict with the religious leaders of his day, and, of course, that conflict led him to the cross. Well, what about you? Uh, what, What conflicts do you face in the present? Large or small, common or uncommon, serious or trivial? Uh, Where do you experience conflict with those around you each day? Conflict's not always bad, of course. Sometimes the best things come out of real conflict. But for now, just just acknowledge it, right? Just notice it. There is conflict in your life and in my life, right? Maybe it's arguments with your coworkers or troubles in your marriage or discord with your kids, squabbles with your neighbors, dissension in your church. Even if you think, no, no, my my life is pretty good. I'm at peace with all men. Uh, Scripture says we have an enemy, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. 
The, the devil opposes God's people, and the world is often hostile to Christians in large and small ways. How are we to live as aliens and strangers in the face of conflict? Well, this brings us to our next point. Point three, trust God's promises. Conflict can be discouraging, so how, how do you respond? Uh, do you go on the offensive, or do you hide in fear? Uh, do you self-medicate, hoping the problem will just go away? Or do you compromise with your values, hoping to appease the other person? Right? Attack, hide, compromise, fear, all ways that we respond to conflict in life. None of them particularly productive. Well, what does Abraham do? Well, at least at this point, he faces it head on. Uh, again, verse 25 says, he reproved Abimelech. And Abimelech, of course, responds by justifying himself. He says in verse 6, I, I do not know, or I do not know. Who has done this thing? And you did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. And you know how it is, right? Uh, you confront someone about something, and they respond, I had no idea. It's not my fault. It's essentially what Abimelech is saying. Now, maybe Abimelech did have no idea, although it was his servants who seized the well. Nevertheless, Abraham sees an opening. Uh, Abimelech didn't shut him down, after all. Uh, he just he made an excuse. And Abraham uh, is not going to let this stop the, the treaty they discussed in verse 23. And so Abraham takes some sheep and oxen, and together they make a covenant. And yet there's more. Abraham takes seven lambs and gives them to Abimelech as a kind of pledge that the well was his. And Abimelech accepts the pledge, and, and the matter is concluded. Now, uh, we'll get into some details about Abraham's relationship to Abimelech in a moment, but for now, just notice this. Uh, first, this is now the second conflict that Abraham has had with Abimelech. You remember the first, the first endangered the promise of children when Abimelech took Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his house. This second conflict endangers the promise of land. If Abimelech refuses to allow Abraham use of the well and another isn't found, it means the end of Abraham's sojourn in the land. And so what is at stake here, and this is why the story is so important despite how mundane it appears, what's at stake here is nothing less than Abraham's life in the promised land. Will, will God provide for him well in the midst of the desert, water in the midst of the desert? But second and more important, notice this, God is at work and God is faithful. And Abraham maintains his standing in the land of promise. It's, it's not yet all his, of course. It's still the land of promise, not possession. But Abraham continues to live in the land in hope. And Abraham does possess the well. And, and it seems pretty, to be pretty significant because the, the word uh, seven is mentioned three times in this passage. Seven is a, a biblical number for completeness. And often when it comes up, it's kind of a clue. You should just take a pause and listen. What's going on here? The word seven is mentioned three times. The word swear, which actually has the same root as the word seven, same basic root, is also mentioned three times. And the word Beersheba, which either means well of oath or well of seven, is also used three times. Uh, and then the names of Abraham and Abimelech are both used seven times. Now, Abraham's name is eight times in the ESV, but it's only seven in Hebrew. So the whole story seems to be this tightly structured uh, little story to focus us on the well of oaths, or the well of seven, Beersheba. And as best as I can tell, the reason is simply this. This well shows God's faithfulness to Abraham. God is keeping his promises to Abraham to give him life in the land. Now, he's already said that uh, the ultimate possession will go to Abraham's descendants, but the well is a foretaste. 
It's a, it's a sip to quench Abraham's thirst as he awaits the future flood of God's blessing. I wonder, again, if you have anything in your life like that, tiny tastes of God's blessing, tastes which kind of anticipate God's fullness. Uh, maybe you have lots of struggles, regular conflict, repeated disappointments in life, and you long for the heavenly promised land, the city with foundations, the new creation, our eternal inheritance. Maybe you are keenly aware that this present life is not that, and so you hope and you long for the future. Okay, but, but what of God's blessings do you experience now? Uh, what small things in your life can you point to which are signs of God's fatherly care and foretastes of things to come? Abraham faced conflict, and God worked it out to give him a, a taste. But, of course, things don't always end that well. Uh, Israel would eventually uh, experience exile. Uh, it, it wasn't pretty. It didn't end well for Israel. And Christ's opposition led to the cross. He didn't escape the cross. In fact, he thirsted. He was parched, thirsting, longing. Christ came to sojourn among us, but his enemies put him to death. Oh, he could have gotten out of it, of course, but he gave himself up on the cross for us. But that was not the end of the story. God was faithful here as well. God was faithful and restored Jesus to the land. God raised Jesus from the dead. He raised him up into heaven where he now sits at the Father's right hand, reigning over heaven and earth. Jesus has been given the land, not just the land of Palestine, but everywhere in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's what he said after his resurrection. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God's promise to give Abraham and his seed the land has been fulfilled. And this is why we can trust God's promises. Uh, you, you know, uh, many of God's promises are hard to believe. Uh, you know, no more sin. Uh, freedom from shame, uh, peace on earth, right? all nations coming together, resurrection, life itself. But God has proven that he plans to keep his promises by raising Jesus from the dead. He has begun to fulfill his promises, life, reigning, victory, strength, vindication, when he raised Jesus from the dead, giving him life and authority, victory over those who put him to death, victory over sin, victory over death itself. Jesus died for sin to pay the full penalty for the sins of his people. But once that penalty was paid, death had no more right over him. And so Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And on the one hand, this proves the, the faithfulness of God. No matter how bad it gets, resurrection is still possible. God still comes through. And we sometimes look at our lives, we look at our situations, and we think, my circumstances are, are too bad. Uh, nothing can fix what is broken. There's no hope here. But death itself has been defeated in the cross and in the resurrection. And so no matter how bad it gets, resurrection is still possible. God is faithful. He will fulfill his promises. On the other hand, Scripture tells us that by faith in Jesus, we are united to him right now. We are joined to him like in a marriage so that what belongs to him becomes ours. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His life becomes our life. His resurrection becomes our promised resurrection. As Jesus rose, so we will rise. Trust God's promises. I don't know how bad things are for you at the moment. Uh, Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. And maybe you are going through some hard stuff at this time. Uh, maybe you think this is the end. There's no way out. Things can't get any worse. They're as bad as they could possibly be. You feel like you're going to lose everything, or maybe you have lost everything. Unlike Abraham, whatever conflict you are facing did not end well. 
If you trust in Jesus, Scripture says you belong to Jesus. That means God is not absent. Uh, As we said in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism earlier, Christ is present with us now. He hasn't forgotten you. God didn't fall asleep on his throne. Nothing has slipped by him. He is still in control and he will fulfill his promises. Whatever happens, however bad things get, God's promises are sure. And however bad it gets, in the end, the promises will be worth it. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying something is coming that will be so amazing it will outshine any darkness. Resurrection glory is on its way. And when it comes, God will wipe away every tear and our sorrow will turn to joy. Trust God's promises. He is faithful. Look to the cross. He will do what he said he will do. So note where we are. We are living as aliens and strangers in this present world. Acknowledge the conflict that we face every day. Uh, Trust in God's promises that he will come through as he raised Jesus from the dead. So our hope is that at the return of Jesus, we too will rise on the last day. Fourth, bless the nations. What is life about? Uh, Why are we here? Uh, Why doesn't God just save us and immediately zap us up into heaven? What is your purpose in life? What are we to do in the present as we await the fullness of God's promises in the future? And the answer is, bless the nations. Uh, This this, uh, chapter begins with Abimelech saying something incredible, actually. This pagan king comes to Abraham and says, God is with you in all that you do. I'm not sure what Abimelech saw. Uh, It could have been what happened back in chapter 20. It could have been God fulfilling his promise to give Abraham Isaac. It could have been something we know nothing about. But whatever it was, Abimelech saw that God was with Abraham. And that same thing will be seen in the life of Joseph and in the life of Moses and in the life of Daniel. Right? The pagan kings recognize God's blessing on them. Abimelech sees God's blessing on Abraham and he wants to make a deal. Uh, in verse 23, he says this, Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Abimelech, of course, had good reason to be concerned. Uh, Abraham hadn't always been straight with him, you may remember from a few chapters ago. And Abimelech doesn't want to get on Abraham's bad side, not when he realizes God has his back. And so he asks for a treaty, and Abraham gives him one. The two men eventually make a covenant in verse 27, but we shouldn't miss the importance of what is happening here. God promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through him, that Abraham would become a blessing, and all nations would be blessed in him. And here, Abimelech sees that and seeks it out. Again, God is fulfilling his promises, blessing the nations through Abraham. Again, if you tease out the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament, if you follow it from here, uh, later in Israel's life, God would forbid them from making covenants with the inhabitants of Canaan. The inhabitants of Canaan were to be wiped out. Their sin was full, and it was time for judgment. But that is not the case here and now. Abraham is to be a blessing, and he makes a covenant. God promised to bless the nations through Abraham and his seed. Sometimes Israel succeeded at this. Sometimes not so much. Uh, You remember Jonah, who ran from his calling to preach to the nations? Uh, When Israel was finally exiled, God said rather than being a blessing to the nations, Israel had become worse than the nations. They had failed at their mission. And yet God didn't just give up. 
Hence, when Jesus came and went to the cross and died for sin, it wasn't for Jews only. Christ came to bless the nations, reconciling Jew and Greek in the cross. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But it's not just that God saves both Jew and Greek in the cross. God takes Jew and Greek and makes what Paul calls one new man. In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. The nations are blessed in Jesus, Abraham's seed, by being joined to Jesus and themselves becoming children of Abraham. And it's not just that, right? Christ came for Jew and Greek, but he came more pointedly for his enemies, as we read earlier in Romans uh, chapter 5. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Whoever you are, however bad your sin, whatever mess you've made in your life, Christ came to die for sinners, sinners like you and me. Trust him and rest in his grace. Now, what does all this mean for us? I mean, on the one hand, it means that the church, in the church, there is no ethnic or national distinctions. Uh, that, that is why our, our denomination is not called uh, the Presbyterian Church of America, uh, but the Presbyterian Church in America. Right? It's a little word, but it's important. Uh, it, it's about location, not loyalty. Uh, but this also shapes the way that we relate to those around us, right? Abraham wasn't at war with the Canaanites like Israel would be years later. We, too, are not at war with those around us. Uh, we often go at life with a wartime mentality, and we are at war with the devil, Scripture says. But we are to do good to all people, Galatians 6.10. And if possible, so far as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with all people, Romans 12.18. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, Matthew 5.44. I see too often Christians live with the wrong kind of wartime mentality. We see everyone else as our enemies. And we begin to see ourselves as righteous and everyone else as wicked, which often becomes self-righteousness, which leads to pride and self-justification. And once we see everybody else as the bad guys and ourselves as the good guys, it's not long before we are boasting in our righteousness. I no longer see myself as needy, as a sinner among sinners. But Abraham and Abimelech were both sinners. Only God's grace distinguished them. We approach others as fellow sinners in need of grace. Is that the way you see others? Right? Uh, oftentimes, we, we look at the distinctions of this age and we see people as different then, right? rather than as fellow sinners. So right, if you're wealthy, is that the way you see the poor? Or if you're poor, is that the way you see the rich? Right? If you're a Republican, is that the way you see Democrats? If you're a Democrat, is that the way you see Republicans? Right? Whatever distinctions we might make in this age, the other is always a fellow sinner in need of grace. No different from you, no better, no worse. Do you seek to bless your neighbors, to do good to all men, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, and not to pray for their destruction, right? but to pray for their good and ultimately pray for their salvation? What does it mean to live as a stranger and alien, a sojourner in the land of promise? Uh, first, uh, note where we are, sojourners among the Philistines. Uh, second, acknowledge the conflict that is real, that we experience every day in large and small ways. Uh, third, trust God's promises. God is faithful. He will see us through our pilgrimage. Fourth, bless the nations. And finally, praise God for his blessings. Uh, once the covenant was made, Abimelech and, and his army general move on, and Abraham does something odd. He plants a tree. 
And there he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Why a tree? Uh, it's kind of an odd detail to you and to me. It's, it's not something Israel does regularly. In fact, uh, certain trees or poles were used in Canaanite worship and so forbidden for Israel. Uh, so what's going on here? Why does Abraham plant this tree? Well, remember where this whole story began. Uh, it began in a garden in the midst of trees. And do you know where it will end? Well, it will end in a new creation, in a new Jerusalem, not a garden, but a city, and yet a city full of trees. Uh, Revelation tells us the tree of life will be there planted on both sides of the river that flows through the midst of the city. And actually, Israel did have a tree, even in its worship space, the golden lampstand, uh, which was made to look like a tree with seven branches, uh, complete with flowers, and uh, the flames were called its fruit. And this tree reminds us of where we've been and of where we're going. Uh, it's, a, it's a symbol that worship in the garden was the pattern from the beginning and will be fulfilled in the end. And so Abraham, as an act of faith, plants a tree at Beersheba and there calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on God to save, to draw near, to be faithful, to keep his promises, to fulfill his covenant. And he did it again and again and again, we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. And so Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Well, we too live in the land of the Philistines. This world is often hostile to God. We experience times of conflict and thirst, but God is faithful. He cares for us along the way, and he will see us through to the end. It's so easy to forget to thank God for his blessings at that time in the mundane. It's so easy to enjoy God's gifts and move on. It's the essence of unbelief. And it's so easy to be focused, so focused on what is to come that we don't enjoy and give thanks for what is. Good things are coming, uh, better things, incredible things, but God is at work now to care for his people along the way. Give thanks for his care along the way during your pilgrimage through this age. Uh, we are aliens and strangers on earth, experiencing many conflicts in the present, but Christ has risen from the dead and has himself entered into the age to come. Trust God's promises, bless the nations, and praise God for his blessings during the many days of your sojourning. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that uh, our hope is not in the present. Uh, it's not in this life. Uh, we, we hope in Christ, and we hope in the age to come, which he has experienced in his resurrection, which he is, is working by his spirit, and which will come on the last day when he returns. And uh, I pray that you would help us to put our hope in Christ and in what he is doing to bring about a new creation uh, to your glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.